This evening's sermon text is from Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. It's Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel that we have been saturated with in the last half hour on all three campuses. And I thank you for the gospel in this text. It is so powerful. And I pray that we would see it, feel it, embrace it, live it in our marriages, in our singleness. Help me to speak faithfully to your word, both in the content of what I say and the way I say it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to the end of the series on marriage, we end today and next week on the issue of divorce and remarriage. It seemed fitting to me that uh, we do it this way because I wanted to lay out for you over the last 10 or 12 weeks the meaning of marriage the ultimate, main, central meaning of marriage so that when we got to this point, what Jesus says would make sense. And I think it does profoundly in view of what we've seen so far. For many of you who have walked through divorce and are now single or remarried, the very word... brings up a huge sorrow, loss, tragedy, disappointment, anger, regret, guilt. Few things are more painful than divorce 
It cuts to the depth of personhood like no other relational gash. It is more emotionally heart-wrenching than the death of a spouse. Death usually is clean pain, and divorce is usually dirty pain. In other words, the enormous loss of a spouse in death is compounded in divorce by the ugliness of sin and the moral outrage and the sense of being wronged. It is often years in the coming and long years in the settlement and the adjustment. The upheaval of life across the board is immeasurable. The sense of failure and guilt and fear torture the soul. The psalmist writes about soaking his pillow with tears night after night. Many people who have walked through divorce would know exactly what he means. Work performance is hindered. You feel as people begin to withdraw from you, they don't know how to relate to you. Friends that you once had begin to fall away from you. And you wonder, do I have a big scarlet D branded on my chest? The loneliness of the divorce is not like the loneliness of the widow or the widower. It's in a class by itself, which is one of the reasons why so many divorced people find each other. A sense of devastated future becomes, for some, all-consuming. The courtroom controversy compounds the personal misery And then there's the agonizing place of the children and parents hope against hope that it won't cripple their children for their own marriages and scar them for life. Tensions over custody become often very ugly and the wounds go deeper. The awkwardness of visitation rights can extend the pain for decades and add to that that it happens to more than four out of ten of every married couple in America. You wonder why our land is filled with pain and how many thousands of strange behaviors and maladies might be owing to the fact that four or five out of 10 people who marry walk through that. There are two ways to respond lovingly and caringly in that situation. One is to come alongside the divorced persons, stand by them as they grieve and, God willing, repent of any wrong of their own in it. Stay by them 
help them to make the transitions and to enjoy the forgiveness and the strength for new obedience, different obedience that was bought for them by the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's one way. The other way to respond lovingly and caringly for the divorced is to articulate a hatred for divorce and why God and his will are against it and do everything we can biblically to keep it from happening. Compromise on the sacredness of lifelong permanence of marriage, which most of us said in our vows, till death do us part. Compromise in the name of compassion on those standards looks loving in the short run and in its weakening of the solidity of the covenant union across churches and families and nations is not loving but wreaks havoc for decades and centuries. Preserving the solid framework of marriage covenant with high standards may feel tough in the short run, but produces 10,000 blessings for future generations. I am the beneficiary of thousands of blessings I do not even know because my grandparents stayed together and my parents stayed together and my wife's grandparents stayed together and her parents stayed together. I am the beneficiary of untold blessings because they gutted it out and even flourished. So there are two ways to love in this situation. One is to come alongside and help. And the other is to take a very firm stand to do everything we can in the church and in the culture to stem the tidal wave of horror coming down on the generations because of divorce and remarriage. One of the reasons that I emphasize the ultimate meaning of marriage for these weeks gone by is so that we would understand that marriage in its most basic, most ultimate sense is such that it makes it impossible for man to have the right to end a marriage. If you have been with me and seen what we have seen, Jesus' radical words here will make sense. The ultimate meaning of marriage, recall, is the representation of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and the church. That's the meaning of marriage. The representation of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. Marriage has other meanings. But that's the most important one, the most original one, the most ultimate one, the most significant one, the one fullest of most implications. 
Marriage is to show the truth of how Christ loves the church and how the church is to be devoted to Christ. That's the ultimate reason marriage exists. Therefore, if Christ ever abandons or discards the church, a man may divorce his wife. And if the church, the blood-bought bride of Christ, ever ceases to be the bride of Christ, a wife may divorce her husband. But as long as Christ keeps his covenant with his bride, and as long as the church, by sustaining grace, remains the chosen people of Jesus Christ, then the meaning of marriage will include what God has joined together, only God can separate. Oh, how I pray that one of the effects of this series on marriage in this church will be to make us a people profoundly serious about the sacredness of marriage. You do not live in a culture that even comes close to the seriousness of the sacredness of this institution. Ordained, created, conceived, blessed by God. The water in which we swim takes it so lightly as to make the words of Jesus incomprehensible. That was true in Jesus' day, so that when he spoke the words, the disciples themselves threw up their hands in the Gospel of Matthew and said, then who should be married? It was incomprehensible to them that Jesus would set the standard that he did. And that's where we live. Marriage is a unique creation of God, a dramatic portrayal of God's relation to his people in Jesus Christ and a display of the glory of the covenant-keeping love of Almighty Christ. That's the meaning of marriage. So, against all the diminished attitudes about marriage in the world, that world and this world, Jesus' world and our world, against all of that, Jesus' words about marriage are breathtaking. This is a work of God, marriage, not man. Therefore, God, not man, breaks it. And he does it through death. Let's go to the text, Mark 10. There are many other texts. We'll look at probably six more next week if you wonder whether we'll look at some others. Mark 10, verse 1. The Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him, or verse 2, came to Jesus and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, there's the question. It's not even asked in our day. Google divorce tonight when you go home. You know what number one is? Easy online divorce. 
Here are the others on the page. Simple divorce online. No fault divorce, $28.95. That's the period after the 28. It's not thousands, that's $28. Easy divorce, $299. People not even asking the question. But they did, the Pharisees did. Is it lawful? The, to scorn, those who scorn the design of God, those who defy and dishonor the glory of Christ in marriage, those who build their lives, their business, their whole legal industry on making divorce cheap and easy are under God's wrath. And they need to repent now before it's too late. Oh, how God hates that industry. Because he said so in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. I hate divorce. And how much more those who build industries around selling it for $28. Don't play with this. Don't play with this. So Jesus knew the Pharisees. They were an adulterous generation. The Pharisees. You don't think of the Pharisees as being an adulterous generation. They were straight laced, zipped up. That's what he called them. So he knew all their defenses of divorce. So he took them there. Verse 3. He responds, What did Moses command you? I know where you're going. You're going to go to Moses, so I'll take you there. But be careful, Pharisees. Moses not only wrote Deuteronomy, he also wrote Genesis. So be careful, Pharisees. Let's go there. Let's go to your place. What, what did Moses say? Verse 4, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's true. He did. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. What will Jesus say to that? Verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, that's an amazing statement. Do you see what that implies? That means there are legal stipulations in the Mosaic law which do not express the ideal will of God but express how best in that time with those people to manage sin. So he told them that. The reason that statement is in Deuteronomy is because of your hardness of heart. And then he said, but, 
And to me, a lot hangs on that. And he goes and he quotes Genesis 1, 27, 2, 24, verse 6 of Mark 10. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the end of the scriptures. He's finished quoting scripture now. What's he going to do with it? He's quoted it. What's he going to do with it? He sees a tension. Do you, do you feel his tension? Deuteronomy 24.1, permission to divorce. But, and then he quotes Genesis and the original design and ideal of God, two, becoming one flesh like Christ and his church become one body, Romans 12, 5. So the question is, which way will Jesus go here? He can go two ways here. Will he say, well, there's still hardness of heart, even in my disciples. So the Deuteronomic permission of divorce still holds. That's a reasonable way to go. Sounds reasonable to me. I believed that for about 40 years. And many do today. Or, here's the second way he could go, and you must judge. Where's he going? What's he doing? How's he thinking? Or he might say, I'm the Messiah. The Christ, the Son of Man, has come into the world to gather a people by faith in him and by union with him. And they are called now to display the true meaning of marriage in the way they keep their marriage covenants. Because I've come into the world to live that reality. And I want you to show that reality in the way you live. In other words, will the emphasis fall on the fact that the church still has hardness of heart in it, so we still need a Deuteronomic permission? Or will the emphasis fall on the old has passed away and the new has come? And my standards are different than Moses. Because I'm here. And I'm what it's about. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to be faithful to my bride. I'm what it's about. I'm on the scene doing it. And now I'm upping the ante to say it's about showing this. Now what he does is draw three conclusions from these Old Testament passages that he quoted. Three conclusions. Here they are. Number one. In verse 8, at the end of the verse, you see the word so? That's a conclusion. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. In other words, he, he quoted that from Genesis 2.24. Man shall leave his mother and father, cleave to each other, become one flesh. And now he says, so they are. Are, not were, not will be, are. 
Now, that's the meaning. When marriage happens, one flesh. That's the first conclusion he draws. They are not two. They are one flesh. The kind of union that I have now with my church, one body. Conclusion number two. In verse 9, what therefore God has joined together. So his second conclusion is God joins people together. A man and a woman fall in love. A man proposes, a woman accepts. Parents come around and bless. A pastor, a justice of the peace is called in. That's a lot of humans working here. And Jesus says, yeah, they're all here, but one person is doing this marriage, God. What therefore God has joined together. When I do a wedding, and I don't do many anymore, I begin at the front end with, we have gathered to solemnize an act that God is about to perform in these next 30 minutes. Therefore, let us now invoke his presence. That's the way I begin. And I usually quote what God has joined together. So that's the second conclusion Jesus draws from Genesis 2.24. God is the marriage maker. Believers and unbelievers. Don't say that's only true of believers. It's true of unbelievers. Marriage is a creation ordinance. It counts outside the church. It counts with God outside the church. Third conclusion that he draws, verse 9. Let not man separate. What God joined, let not man separate. Now, the word translated man is not the word male over against female. It's the word human over against divine. Man in the generic sense. So the point he's making is divine action created this. Human action can end it. That's the point. What God has joined, let no human being presume to separate. Those are the three conclusions that Jesus draws, and he's done with the Pharisees. It's over. They ask no more, he says no more. That's all he has to say to them. And they're gone. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answers, what God has joined together, let no man separate. The answer is no, it's not lawful. It contradicts the ultimate meaning of marriage as a representative, a representation 
of Christ in the church. Now, of course, one might say a very thoughtful, careful, reasoning person would legitimately say, it's always contradicted the main meaning of marriage. Even in Moses' day, it contradicted the meaning of marriage. So, Moses made a way out. Why can't we still have a way out? To which my response is, that's not the way Jesus is thinking in these verses. Jesus is calling his disciples to a higher standard rooted in the original teaching of Moses, not the compromised teaching of Deuteronomy 24. Jesus didn't come simply to fulfill the Mosaic legal stipulations and affirm them. He came to fulfill it in his own person and work, his obedience and death, and then to take his ransomed, forgiven, justified people into a higher standard that understands the fullness and depths of Moses. I'll give you an analogy of what I mean. You know the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I think that's a very rich statement that includes a lot of things. One of the things it includes is the six statements of illustration that follow. He gives six examples of what it would mean to go down deep into Moses and come up full. Give you a couple of examples. You remember them. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus didn't just come to make sure we don't kill each other. He came to say, do you know what's in there? You know what, what the deep, rich, solid, full meaning of don't kill is? It means don't be angry. And I'm here to bring it about and fill it up. Here's a second example. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He didn't just come to keep us out of bed with other women. He came to clean up our heads. You see what he's doing? Jesus is not simply saying, okay, you, you didn't get Moses and I'm here to reinstall Moses. He's saying, I'm going down deep. He's pointing forward. He's pointing down. And I'm going to let this thing flower. And I'm going to live it. I'm going to die it. I'm going to forgive all your failures of it. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to empower you. And now my people will have a different standard from this world. That's what he's about. Massive forgiveness. And massive transformation. So, Jesus didn't just come to fulfill the law in his own work. He came to take 
those who have been blessed by that work into a radical understanding and a radical obedience of what Moses at root was getting at and beyond. That's not based on law. It's based on Christ. And it's meant to display Christ, especially his covenant-keeping love for his people. Marriage among Christians is mainly meant to tell the truth about the gospel. Let's say that again. Marriage among Christians is mainly meant to tell the truth about the gospel. Does your marriage tell the truth about the way Christ loves, keeps, perseveres, is patient, endures, dies? So here's a sum, I think, of what he has said so far. You have heard that it was said, you are permitted to divorce. But I say to you, I have come to conquer the hardness of heart. I have come to die for your sins. I have come to count you as righteous. I have come to show you the drama of marriage. And what it's supposed to represent about me and my sacrifice and my covenant-keeping love for my bride. I have come to give you power to stay married or to stay single. So that either way, you keep your promises and show what my covenant love is like and how sacred is the covenant bond of marriage. Pharisees are gone. They're gone. He goes into the house, and now it's just him and his disciples in verses 10 through 12. It's just him and the ones who are going to follow him and die with him. Are you among that number? Get ready. Verse 10. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Mark doesn't report, like Matthew does, which we'll talk about next time, how stunned the apostles were. Their mouths fell open. They could not believe he was saying what he was saying. Just like some of you feel. I'll try next time, and I do hope you'll come back, and if you can't, you can... Listen online. I will try next time to show more fully from Matthew 5.32, Matthew 19.9, 1 Corinthians 7.10-11, 1 Corinthians 7.12-16, 1 Corinthians 7.39, Romans 7.1-3, why I think we should take these words at face value. Not everybody does. Most people don't take them at face value. And there are reasons why they don't, and I'll try to address those reasons next time. But I do take them at face value. Keep your marriage vows in such a way as to tell the truth about the unbreakable covenant love of Christ.
Keep your marriage vows in such a way as to tell the truth about the unbreakable covenant love of Christ for his church. So here's my closing emphasis. You know, Chuck is, who put this service together, is so wise and so sensitive. Many of you came into this room and the other campuses trembling about this message. I, I know that because I was told that by you. And next week's as well. And uh, Chuck set the stage with beautiful gospel mercy. I hope you heard it. We sang it. We soaked in it for 30 minutes plus, And I know that's been the case at these campuses. So I want you to hear what I prayed at the beginning, namely that what Jesus just said in verses 10 to 12 is the gospel. It's not felt by a lot of people as the gospel. I just want to show you as I close that it is. Jesus is saying that he doesn't want you to divorce your spouse no matter what while they live. Ultimately, he says, if you do and marry another, you commit adultery. We'll deal with that next week about, whoa. You know how many remarried people there are in this room, Piper? Yeah. Sort of. So I want to talk to you next week. Please hear me. But right now, why is his saying that? Gospel. That's my closing question. Why is his saying, if a man leaves his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. And if a wife leaves her husband and marries another, they commit adultery. Why is that gospel? And the reason is this. Ultimately, that's adultery because it betrays the truth about Christ that marriage was meant to display. Namely, Christ never, ever, ever does that to his bride. even those in the bride who divorce. And remarry. He never forsakes. He never abandons her. He never abuses her. He always loves her. Back when she wanders. He always is patient with her. He always cares for her. He always provides for her. He always protects her. And wonder of wonders, he always delights in her. Amazing. Are you married? Are you divorced and remarried? Twice? Three times? Have you never been married? 
if you repent, say no to the sinful way that is before you and behind you. And receive, like a child, the treasure of Christ as your punishment and Christ as your obedience so that he has borne your condemnation and provided your righteousness. If you receive that, married 15 times serially, your sins will be forgiven you. And when Jesus says, I'm holding the standard here for marriage. That if you leave your spouse and marry another, you lie about the way I love my church. Don't lie about me. I stay by my church. I stand by my sinning bride. I forgive her day after day after day. I have not damned Bethlehem Baptist Church full of sin like it is. Don't tell another story with your marriage. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. To lift up that standard, Christ always forgives. Christ always takes her back. Even if she's been married He met one of them. How many times has she been married? Tell me. Five. And this man is not your husband. What did he do about that? I don't deal with people like you. No way. I came into the world for people like you. This is a gathering place for people like that. But not who are proud of that. Not who planned that broken people. People ready to be received and ready to receive the gospel. The radical call of Jesus never to divorce and remarry is a declaration of the gospel by which people who have failed to obey may be received. Father in heaven, I love the gospel. My life hangs on the gospel because I am a sinful man. My only hope is that you would show me mercy because of Jesus. And I'm sure I speak for every spiritually awake person in this room. Married single, divorced, remarried, sleeping around. Oh God, let us hear the solid, radical words of Jesus and wear them with gospel-empowering joy. Through Christ I pray. Amen.